Hey, Retrospectors, for our third birthday, we've filmed an hour-long Q&A answering your questions. We discuss our favourite facts, how we make the show, and what we've learned along the way. If you're already supporting us on Patreon, thank you. You can watch it right now at patreon.com slash retrospectors. And if you're not a Patreon member, sign up. You don't have to pay a thing to become a free member and watch it now. So check it out. It's free. Patreon.com slash retrospectors. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's September 26th, 2008, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Ariel, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. From Astro Boy to Iron Man, flying around powered only by jet engines has fascinated people for, well, pretty much as long as there have been jet engines. But it took Swiss aviator Yves Rossi to turn the jet-powered fantasy into much more of a reality than ever before, today in history in 2008, when his years-long project to become a real-life rocket man culminated in a nine-minute, 32-second flight over the English Channel. Yeah, today was the day he became the first person ever to cross the English Channel using a jet-propelled wing strapped to his back, because why the (laughs) hell would anyone want to do that? Yeah, I mean, if you picture the scene, he got to 2,500 feet over Calais in his support plane and then tumbled out. He was wearing this six-foot-wide plastic wing reinforced with carbon fibres and attached to it were four kerosene-fuelled turbine engines. As you can imagine, a six-foot wing isn't very good in a small support plane, so it was folded up, which meant he tumbled out 2,500 feet over Calais and then plunged for several hundred metres before the wings unfolded as, you know, going to plan and stabilised, enabling him to stop plunging. Yeah, it was actually his third attempt. The two previous attempts had been postponed due to bad weather, And on this day, the weather was so favourable that actually he was helped on his way by this tailwind that cut his flight time by about two and a half minutes. And consequently, he arrived over the White Cliffs of Dover with enough fuel to be able to do this uh, sort of uh, celebratory aerobatics routine that he hadn't planned on. He just was like, well, I'm here early and I've got some fuel to dump, so I'll just entertain the crowds a little below. He then pulled his parachute and drifted gently downwards towards the ground, waving his legs excitedly as he went, but then face plants in the dirt, which is just this sort of deep contrast to the elegance of both the flight and then the descent towards Earth. He just, like, crash lands as he arrives. He was fine, but it's just not a very dignified landing. But if it had gone the other way... If the tailwind hadn't cut his flight time, but in fact, for some reason, his flight time had been extended by two and a half minutes, he'd basically have run out of fuel. Yeah. Because, you know, the thing's really heavy, these four tanks of kerosene on his back. And you can only fly for, I can't remember the exact amount, but it's like 12 or 13 minutes that he had, Mm. max. 
before he would go plummeting into the sea and die. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, he also had no navigation tools. You know, the whole point is that he turned himself into the aeroplane. Yeah. He said later, you are the fuselage, you are the cockpit. But this also meant that you obviously can't navigate. So the support plane that he jumped out of also then guided him. So if he hadn't had that, it's like, it's not like you've got an awful lot of leeway to just be like tootling around over the English Channel. You basically <laughs> need to have a plane that you can follow. <laughs> I mean, I say he would have died. Obviously, he had a parachute. Yes. He had two parachutes a backup as well as the main one and he had a, like a release string that he could pull that would just chuck the the fuel into the sea if needs be so i mean probably he'd have been okay he was pretty experienced at this but still it's just such a completely insane thing to do isn't it i, yeah. I think you know the the crowds that gathered to see him what what are they watching like are they watching man's new frontier of flight or is it just almost a circus freak show of like, can you believe this guy's doing this? Yeah, and I mean, it was dangerous stuff 99 years before this day when French aviation pioneer Louis Blériot made the first ever aeroplane crossing of the Channel in a rickety monoplane. It took him 36 minutes and he won a £1,000 prize, which had been offered by the Daily Mail, leading the Daily Express to declare Britain is no longer an island. So you can only imagine what they would have made of a man with a jetpack landing in the middle yeah. of Dover. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously decades had passed in which uh, manned flight had become normalised. So, I mean, what Yves Rossi had, which some of those uh, aeronautical pioneers didn't, was experience. He was 49 years old on this day. He worked for Swiss Air and Swiss International flying passenger planes, including the Boeing 747, and he'd previously been uh, an army pilot, a fighter pilot. But as you said, Rebecca, the fact is, the steering of this um, jetpack, the wingsuit, he called it, um, was entirely kinesthetic. In mm. other words, he's not piloting. He arches his back to gain altitude. He tips his head to change direction. So however much experience he has as an aeroplane pilot, it's not useless, obviously, but it's sort of um, adjacent to the experience mm. of handling this particular backpack, which is a self-designed homemade device. Yeah, he'd actually been working on the project since the 90s and his first successful trial flight was in 2004 when he flew uh, near Geneva in Switzerland. And since 2007, he'd started to conduct his flights from this private airfield in the Costa Brava in Spain. He'd actually spent $190,000 of his own money to build the device in the first place. And he spoke about it after he landed as being, well, he said, with that crossing, I showed it's possible to fly a little bit like a bird. I'm full of hope there will be many in the near future. So he had in mind that like this was the start of us all potentially getting wingsuits of our own. Presumably, he also had in mind that maybe the technology would come from his own uh, particular type of jet suit that he was uh, pioneering. Well, you know, from the 1960s onwards, there's been this pop cultural awareness of jetpacks. You know, I've heard comedians joke about how come, you know, we never got the jetpacks that were promised. But kind of as you touched on, Ollie, the issue isn't with the jetpacks. The issue is with people. It's the fact that the human body is like not a very good vessel for flying mm. in. You know, Rossi has spoken <laughs> about having to have such precise control over his head, his arms, his legs. You know, his first wingsuit, he had two engines and he could only move side to side the one that he flew with on this day enabled him to move up although crucially not down you know as we mentioned he had to use a parachute you know and it, it takes so much training for the human body to be controlled enough to navigate with a jetpack safely and even then there are still accidents the human body is just fundamentally unstable 
And yet you get the sense that with all the enthusiasm that surrounds the idea of jetpacks, there's probably enough kind of um, geeky fanboy come good billionaires of the Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos um, mold that, you know, were it something that were truly achievable, they would have achieved it by now. There was this moment at a TechCrunch Disrupt conference in 2004 that the head of Google X, which is Google's research laboratory, flew out on a jetpack. <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't have surprised me if he did. <laughs> but no, they. he said that, um, that they'd actually investigated jetpacks, but basically found them too inefficient to be practical. So as well as all of the safety concerns, the simple truth is that to get someone airborne, you have to generate 1G worth of, uh, of lift or propulsion to be able to counteract gravity. And that burns an enormous amount of fuel. So they're just not really all that useful on Earth. The place where they have become useful, obviously, is in space where, you know, uh, astronauts sometimes do take spacewalks with jetpacks on their, on their backs. But that's because there's no gravity up there. And mm. a very small amount of thrust can yield dividends in terms of propulsion. Yeah, I mean, the main obstacle to the use of jetpacks on Earth, apart from the frailty of the human body, is the fact that they consume such huge amounts of fuel. You know, the wingsuit that Eve Rossi wore on this day to fly, it has a maximum air flight time of 13 minutes, but that consumes 30 kilograms of kerosene. He said before that he thinks passenger drones are a more likely way that people will be flying around in the future because of this fuel issue, because of, you know, increased awareness of the fact that we shouldn't just be burning up hundreds of kilos of fuel just so that we can fly around in a wingsuit. You know, even the rocket belt, the, the version that was developed in the 60s, that used five gallons of hydrogen peroxide for a maximum flight of 21 seconds. You know, that's the reason that the project petered out is who is going to be carrying around that much hydrogen peroxide in a battlefield situation, but not before James Bond used a rocket belt in mm. Thunderball in 1965, which yet again functioned to communicate to the public that we were on the verge of a mm. jetpack society. And Michael Jackson flew out of Wembley Stadium in the Dangerous Tour in a jetpack. <laughs> I was there, I saw it, it was definitely him. <laughs> well, despite its potentially, you know, non-starter feasibility issues, um, Rossi has continued to at least use his own uh, jet suit to do a few other uh, crossings of various kinds. He uh, attempted a crossing of the Strait of Gibraltar, hoping to be the first person to fly between two continents. He was actually scuppered by strong winds and cloud banks, which forced him to ditch into the sea 4.8 kilometres short of the destination. The Spanish Coast Guard did actually manage to retrieve both him and the jetpack, so that was good news. He also uh, flew above the Grand Canyon in 2011. Um, he really only had a very short amount of time that he was given permission to do it and did it just incredibly swiftly so as to make sure that he, he sort of got his flight out of the way. And he's also flown around Christ the Redeemer and Mount Fuji. So he's done a few notable flights in, in sort of significant locations. I'm going to guess the real next frontier would be if you could somehow attach a tin box with passengers in it safely on a wing and then they didn't have to experience the wind through their hair and nearly die. Imagine. You know, with regulations and, you know, airports. That would be a real innovation, wouldn't it? A craft that could fly through the air. What would we call this thing? Tomorrow. Yes, no fewer than 23 toasts were drunk at the town hall that evening. <laughs> Ditch the ads and get a Sunday episode when you join Club Retrospectors. Patreon.com slash Retrospectors.